My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Well, we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling the gaps of each department like glue. I am also autistic. This is our 18th episode of the podcast, Foundation Appreciation, with special guest Cindy Langenfeld of our Els for Autism Board of Directors. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Here are some news and updates about the foundation first. One, the first one is about episode 17. Tune into our last episode, episode 17, where we talked to Mindy York, co-founder of the Baby Outer Swim School, about our experiences teaching very young kids the proper techniques to learn how to swim and to save themselves from drowning. Her school is a beacon to the autism community with many, many of the clients being on the spectrum and with one of them being prestigious Special Olympian, Layla Craham. Make sure to tune in to listen to our interview and other parts of our program, and uh, you will get to learn some very valuable things. So while we started almost all of our new sessions of recreation services in August, we do have a program that just started yesterday uh, by the recording of this podcast and known as the Interability Course Program, which is a way to combine the, ability, the abilities of our clients with neurotypical individuals for acquired to remember. Remember, if you're interested in any of our fall programs, make sure to visit the events calendar on our website and the current recreation schedule for more details. Also, if you're interested in our other programs, they should be on the calendar too. Next is our call for new volunteers. We would like to ask for new volunteers for our fall programs and other parts of our infrastructure that serve as great ways to help us in doing our jobs. Volunteers will be expected for tennis, golf, art, music therapy, development, reception, and other positions. A link to the website and to our Google Doc sheet for new volunteers will be in our show notes. Make sure to not remove anyone's name who is already volunteering with us. And if you are 18 or over, it is imperative to pass our level two background check first before becoming one. Also, uh, this month it was decided to interview a mother and her son about going to the Learning Academy, one of our schools on campus, in celebration of back to school. And also since it marks the first time in over a year since the schools have completely gone back to an in-person instruction. That will be on the blog article for this month. We are getting ever so closer to the grand finale. We have our first events of autumn here. On Thursday, September 16th, we will be at the beautiful Silver Creek Valley Country Club in San Jose, California. On Monday, September 20th, join us at the Riverbend Golf and Country Club at Great Falls, Virginia, just a drive to the DC district. And lastly, on Monday, September 27th, we will be at the Pine Lake Country Club at West Bloomfield Township in Michigan. Please be sure to contact Paige Thomas, our events manager and Golf Challenge Superstar for more details, which we will have in our show notes. Okay, so our guest today is Cindy Langenfeld. Cindy and her husband, Randy, live in Palm Beach Gardens, and their daughter, Jennifer, is a student at the Learning Academy. Jennifer is also an active participant in the recreation programs at the Els for Autism Foundation. Cindy recently joined the board of the foundation. She had been actively involved in the fundraising for the Adult Services Center to be built on campus. We are happy to have Cindy with us today to speak about her family's experience at the ELS Center. So thank you for being on our show today, Cindy. Thank you, Merrick, and thanks for the introduction. 
All right. Now let's get started with uh, your questions, uh, uh, Nate. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do it. First of all, welcome, Cindy. And thank you very much again for joining us on the For Autism podcast here. So first off, um, you know, because I've, and I'll tell the listeners, you know, I've worked with Cindy's daughter, uh, Jennifer on the tennis court. I've had the privilege to do that. And I've seen how enthusiastic you guys are and how supportive you are. And I wanted to ask you, do you have any advice, any words of wisdom to some of our listeners who um, may have recently found out that their child uh, has autism? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would tell you that I think when um, a family gets uh, the diagnosis of autism, I think there's a, a little bit of shock, frankly, and then and then a little bit of uncertainty. Um, and I would tell you that, you know, Jennifer is 20 years old, um, but I will today there are so many resources available to families that can help, um, both in terms of understanding uh, what is uh, going on with their child and how to help treat that. Autism is a is a very broad spectrum, and and you know it's it's there's no single bullet that actually helps to diagnose every every person. Every person's a bit different on the spectrum, and so you know my my biggest advice would be to one you know, go get testing done um, to get a good baseline on the child and, and to truly understand, you know, what are some of the symptoms and, and some of the uh, issues that the child is facing. And then really to start treatments with centers like the ELS Foundation. They've got a wonderful uh, pre-K program. They've got a wonderful speech and OT program. I mean, and they've got all the available resources, people from around the globe come to ELS to get help. And um, my biggest advice would be to truly make sure that you understand all the available resources. Um, and I think that, you know, to lean on people to help you and your child as you, as you, you know, really go, go through your challenges and, and try to get help for your child for autism. Early intervention is key. Um, and I would tell you that from, from my perspective, from Jennifer and, and over 20 years, our constant work with people who are experts in the field has really helped us to have her advance. Yeah, that's really well stated. And it definitely, it's definitely helpful to have a, a large team of support and, and people from multiple disciplines too. Absolutely. So, staying on that, that family topic, I was also hoping you could talk a little bit about within your family, you know, how are the interactions between Jennifer and some of her siblings? It's, it's something we've spoken a lot about on the podcast is how interesting those interactions can be and, and how important SIBs can be in the process. Yeah, I mean, uh, so just, you know, just a little bit of, of personal disclosure here too. So Jennifer is one of four children. Um, she has uh, two brothers and a sister. Um, and I also uh, have a brother who is uh, autistic and on the spectrum. So I have grown up uh, with autism uh, in my family as a sibling, and now I have a parent. I'm a parent who has you know, a child with autism and uh, three other siblings of my daughters who actually um, are fabulous you know, with her. Um, but I, I wanna make sure we all understand that you know, special needs children really um, and, you know, require and, and demand a lot of attention. And that puts a lot of pressure on the family in total. Um, and you know, as as I've grown up as a sibling, you know, it's very important to help siblings to understand and deal um, with an autistic brother or sister. And what I mean by that is having them really understand, um, you know, what it means to have autism, what their brother and sister is going through. Um, it, it helps to them to really get a better perspective, frankly, of some of the challenges uh, that their siblings faces, but also gets them to talk a little bit about how they're feeling um, about the situation. Um, uh, Samantha Ells has a wonderful program that she's starting that I think it's great uh, with SIBS with autism. Um, and I think that uh, finding support, not only for the siblings and, and so that they can talk about how they can 
understand it better, but also support it better. Some, uh, Jennifer's brothers and sisters are key to her support structure. They actually are great about uh, taking care of her, responding to her needs. Uh, they're all part of how we treat autism. And that's what happens when you're a sibling. Um, the only other thing as a parent I would tell you is that I think it's very important that you make sure you find special time for those siblings. Quite a few times in these families, as I said at the beginning, that the special needs child requires and, and demands, if you will, attention. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the parent time and effort goes into that. And sometimes siblings feel a little bit left out and, and it, it's good to find ways to carve out time for the other siblings and, and to make their time special so that there's some level of balance so that there's no issue in terms of, uh, you know, having any type of, of, of conflict uh, between the siblings. But overall, I would tell you that um, siblings can be a very important part of a child's development when they're younger. Um, I am the primary guardian for my brother now who is in a group home in Florida. And so um, it's, a, it's a very important role that I take um, and, and support my brother. And so um, having siblings as part of uh, how we help uh, treat those with special needs is critically important. Yeah, I really appreciate your answer and also speaking to all the perspectives involved, including, you know, the need to have uh, adequate attention and, and time spent towards, you know, all, all children in the family and um, just really interesting. So my last question here, um, because, you know, as I mentioned before, I've worked with Jennifer on the tennis court and just gotten to see, you know, how exciting it, it's so exciting to see how much uh, she lights up uh, while she's playing and, and can get in a, a zone uh, so to speak. And I, I was hoping you could speak a little about um, what do you think it is about tennis or something like golf that uh, creates uh, such a, such a good opportunity. Well, you know, I think when, when a child has autism, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. I mean, there's, there's a, an approach. If, if children are in school, they have an IEP, um, you know, there's a there's an approach, there's a discipline. We try to help them with their speech or their OT or their PT, and 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 so much of their day is structured. One of the great things about the recreation programs and about you know the sports you talked about specifically, it allows child the child the autistic child to have the opportunity to express themselves in other ways. Um, Jennifer is, is uh, athletic, if you will, um, and, and she's got very natural hand-eye coordination. She enjoys the sports. She doesn't necessarily always understand um, the point scoring. If, if, Jennifer, if Jennifer goes out to the golf course and she'll go out on weekends with us and, and she just putts or chips and she could hit it a hundred times and once it goes in the hole, she cheers. Um, and that's <laughs> most of us who actually golf on a regular basis are not cheering with a seven putt. Um, but what's, what's good about it is that she finds um, um, passion and an ability to express herself athletically. She finds ways to, you know, release um, and, 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 you know, many, many autistic children, you know, enjoy the swing or they enjoy different types of, of sensory items. It's just a different way for her to express herself. And frankly, like any other child, there's things that she wants to find that she's good at. Um, Jennifer's very good at, at the athletics. She enjoys the golf. She enjoys the tennis. She loves the yoga. She likes the kickball. She doesn't actually understand the sport aspect of it, the game, the scoring of it, but the activity, the physical outlet, um, the unstructuredness, if you will, the ability to be independent, you know, she stands there and she can swing the club on her own. She can hit the, you know, tennis racket on her own. And, 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 and it's as long as she's making contact with the ball, it doesn't have to be specific, um, is a great outlet for her. And, and finally, it's very social. Um, and, and, uh, I think that that is what she enjoys more than anything else is getting out there and being able to, um, have the social aspect balanced with the athletic side of it. And, um, I think that's good for anybody with autism or not. Yeah, she certainly is a terrific athlete and, I, I would agree that it's especially when we, when we would get towards the end of the class where it's time to rally with the coach where, 
we would have these 50, 60 ball rallies and uh, just both, both um, getting so much enjoyment out of just kind of getting lost in the sport and using that as an outlet to, to connect with others. Absolutely. Uh, what benefits has being in the Learning Academy brought to Jennifer um, Langenfeld? So Jennifer is entering her fifth year at the Learning Academy. Um, she had a wonderful setup. We used to live in New Jersey um, when she was coming up, you know, pre-K all the way through with treatments and services. Um, one of the key things for us is, is that we wanted to get into a place where there was 100% focus and dedication to autism. Um, that includes teaching, um, services, peers, um, just people who were totally engulfed with autism because it's something that Jennifer is going to be afflicted by and have to deal with for the rest of her life. Um, and we, we, you know, the, her, her services and everything that can be done for her when you have that 100% environment focused on that um, is outstanding. Um, she gets much more advanced help and, and, and frankly, the ability to troubleshoot. I've been extremely happy with the work around the behavioral side. Um, Jennifer doesn't have really a lot of behavior problems, but when she has frustrations and other elements, um, it's, it's immediately addressed. Um, and frankly, we're quite comfortable in the environment. Um, you know, when she started out, she was doing quite a bit of academic and now she's moving to more of the vocational. I think that as, um, you know, Jennifer transitions, we take a look at, okay, how she can integrate into the community. How does she actually find a way to be a part of the society? This transition um, and having her being better prepared for the future and what um, the, the Learning Academy can get ready for the vocation side is key too. So those, those are some of the key areas because Jennifer is going to be an adult with autism, so we need to transition our focus to that so that she is equipped to uh, have the best life possible. And uh, I noticed that uh, Jennifer uh, really, really, um, this may have been answered before from question three, but I've noticed that uh, out of all the different clients we have, Jennifer constantly pops up no matter what program it's in. She always has her name in that program. So why, why, um, I, why have they been so successful for her? Yeah, I mean, we talked a little earlier about the athletic side of it. One of the great things about the ELS uh, Foundation is that they have a broad array of recreation programs. You know, Kelly does a fabulous job, whether it's art, um, whether it's music, she's got um, theater in there. Um, Kelly runs movie nights. I mean, again, I can't say enough about all the different uh, services that are available. And like anyone else, I mean, everyone is different. Um, we might go to school and be, you know, have, take the same classes, but then after school, some people go and play music or some people go and play sports and other people go to work. And the broad array of options that are out there really allows us to give Jennifer not only a social outlet and her ability to kind of interact despite her communication issues. So she can be with the kids and participate and yet not have to, you know, um, be totally 100% um, on, you know, excellent in terms of her communication, but allows her also to try all kinds of things and what she likes. And just like anyone else, there's things she likes and she doesn't like. Um, but I also think it's very important that Jennifer, you know, goes to school and is very structured until two o'clock. And then we give her some flexibility at the end of the day to develop and be social and to also try things that she may like, because um, that's important uh, versus her just coming home and watching videos all night long. That's why, in addition to the broader way of the programs, we think it's important for her well-being, Merrick, that she participates and is actively involved. Okay, and last question. As a board member and the parent of a daughter who loves our programs and uh, the schools we oversee, can you provide your thoughts to our listeners as to the overall importance of the foundation? Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, and I want to reiterate this again. I mean, uh, I, I think Elle's Foundation is a resource for autism worldwide. And the what has been built by many people over there in terms of not just the you know, K through eight and the, and the high school, but also the early intervention programs. 
are foundational to what we need to do kind of going forward. You know, we need to build a sustainable model to support for many, many more years to come autism. Um, we need to be a reference for those around the globe who can come in and see how, if I live in Minnesota and I have a child who's got issues, how can I find programs up here or how can I replicate what we've got going on here? But also, you know, we're making a big focus now, as a, you mentioned in the opening, on adult services and building an adult services center. There are many, many people who have autism across the spectrum who need job training, who need the opportunity to have a day center to come in and to be productive as part of the community. And I think that's key. And so I think the foundation um, is relatively young in its, in its life. And, and, and what I mean by that is we have so much more to do. Um, we are not just a local resource. We are gonna be a global resource and we're going to have um, not only the broad array of services that are available, but also find ways to treat you know, autism from the time that you know, kids are very, very young, but also adults and you know, like my brother who's in his fifties who lives with autism. And I think that's what's so critical about the programs and the schools and the foundations and finding ways to continue that, fund that, and to find ways to grow that is going to be critical. And that's why I feel very uh, fortunate to be have been uh, selected to join the board um, so that I can help um, in advancing that. Well, thank you so much for your answers to these questions. America Nate, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate all you do. And, and thank you for these podcasts and for helping to educate folks on autism. Uh, you do great work and it's very appreciated. Thank you. We really appreciate you as well and, and everything you said about the foundation. You know, I, I might be a little biased, but I couldn't agree more with the <laughs> com comprehensive nature of the foundation for just- Well, that uh, makes two of us. We're both biased. <laughs> and I'm biased too. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, Merrick, thanks again, you all, and uh, have a great night. And now, today in the world of autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock, and his research-oriented topics. Okay, time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. For our first story, I want to present some information on a newly FDA-approved diagnosis tool for ASD. So core symptoms of ASD can appear as early as 18 months. However, many children do not receive the diagnosis until much later on. This ultimately may result in treatment delays during a critical window of development. The diagnosis is also important for determining access to early intervention services. The Cognoa ASD diagnosis aid is a machine learning based device designed to aid healthcare providers in diagnosing ASD in children 18 months through five years of age. The device consists of three key components. First, a mobile app for caregivers and parents to respond to questions about behavior problems and also to upload videos of their child's behavior. Two, a portal for video analysis allowing trained and certified specialists to view and analyze the uploaded videos of patients. And three, a healthcare provider portal that is intended for a healthcare provider to enter answers to preloaded questions about behavior problems, track the information provided by parents or caregivers, and review a report of the results. Using an algorithm, the device reaches one of three possible outcomes positive for ASD, negative for ASD, or not enough information. The FDA recently assessed the safety and effectiveness of the Cognoa ASD diagnosis aid through a study of 425 patients that were aged 18 months through five years. The research was conducted at 14 different clinical care sites with an average participant age of 2.8 years. The study compared the assessments made by the device directly against the assessments made by a panel of clinical experts who use the current standard ASD diagnosis process. The device results match the panel's conclusions for 81% of patients who tested positive and 98% of patients who tested negative for ASD. 
False positives occurred for 15 of the 303 subjects without ASD. A false negative occurred in only one out of the 122 study subjects with ASD. So what are the takeaways here? First of all, I wanna point out that the reliability of these numbers is very good compared to prior devices, prior attempts at something similar. And so this speaks to there being a lot of potential here with the Cognoa diagnosis aid. Now, that being said, in the grand scheme of things, a sample of 425 patients, although it sounds like a lot, it, this still alludes to the need for additional research with this device using larger sample sizes, but not to take anything away from those reliability statistics because they are very strong and promising. Also, the device has not yet been approved as a standalone tool for making a diagnosis. So again, more work is needed, but Merrick, I'll turn this over to you. Do you see potential for this device to be used as a standalone diagnosis tool in the future? And what are some of your other takeaways? Well, what I think about this device is that, you know, while technology can be very, very, uh, you know, uh, designed with the right frame of mind and designed by, uh, you know, people who have enough of that mentality, I think that uh, it's, it's very interesting. I, I've got this uh, program. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's on uh, my Google Chrome browser. And what it does is it completes sentences for me. And I hardly use it at all. But the fact that I would put something in and then it would know wh what I'm actually talking about without saying anything, it's, uh, it, it's quite a marvel. So I, I think that, you know, you shouldn't underestimate the power of mechanics and technology to be very, very, very accurate in, uh, you know, making uh, big, big decisions like that. Um, yeah. I, I did find it interesting. Uh, one of the takeaways that I had was that this machine itself um, actually, it's more accurate at determining people who don't have ASD versus people who do. So I guess if you're a parent or someone and you're feeling concerned about your child and you're not sure if the child has ASD or not, then this uh, tool could possibly be more effective in favor of not giving someone a faulty ASD diagnosis. Because that's 98% of patients who tested negative for ASD uh, match the panel's conclusions. And a false negative occurred in one out of 122 study subjects with ASD. Um, it's uh, it's a very interesting, uh, I guess, uh, thought strategy builds up in my brain because of this. Um, yeah. I I believe that once you know enough pieces have been built together, I I think that this would be very important as a diagnosis tool, but. Uh, I hate to say this though, sometimes what you really need is you really need a human being to do all the diagnostic work because, uh, you know, a machine runs on logic and runs on analysis, but it, there's no room for any kind of analysis of emotional or a social or a communicative or well communication based um, operations within it. 
I, I, I don't believe that the machine will be sophisticated enough to understand because part of autism, as we know, as it is, is, is that it has to do with language, with social cues, um, you know, maybe even, you know, socio-emotional learning, that kind of thing. And the machine could probably go and say, you know, you could put in, oh, this, this child repeats words or the behavior is this way or that way. But, you know, I, I just, I guess what I'm trying to think about is, is that, is, is the machine going, if the machine is going to do that early intervention diagno diagn diagnostics to it, um, in, in that area, then is, is that more informative than a human doing all the diagnostics? But I, I also think though that since the machine runs on a lot of human, uh, you know, interference, right? May, maybe it could be of a, a very, a very important use. I mean, you know, the earlier you get intervention, the better. And if if a machine has to do the work for a human being based on a lot of different things and a lot of different skill sets and abilities then, you know, I, I think that that is very, very valuable. Yeah, a lot of good points there to unpack a little more. Uh, first of all, I want to mention, and I didn't mention this right away um, in the article, but the company Cognoa, um, this, this story, we actually brought up on the podcast several episodes ago, several months ago, when I presented work that was being done by Dr. Geraldine Dawson and team of researchers at Duke University. So this product is based off of that research that they were doing and they, they're on the board for this company as well. So um, I do think there's, there's been a lot of really brilliant minds who have been at work with this and, and a lot of impressive research and I'm with you, Merrick. I think that the human element is very necessary, but um, at the same time, even with this not being a standalone diagnosis tool, it could be really useful for people maybe looking for a second opinion um, or, or even in the case of the aspect of the platform that allows parents to upload videos that can be so useful in our more rural areas or underserved communities for um, you know trying to get some expert opinions on uh, their child's behaviors. But I can also see a counterpoint to this, actually, mm. because these are machines. Because it's it's something uh, man-made, you know. Uh, if, if you're in a rural area and you feel like your child has autism because you somehow got one of these machines as a standalone tool home with you and you go over and you look for services in your area or something like that, how skeptical will people believe, especially those who are uninformed about the machine, how skeptical will they be, oh, well, that machine could say anything or, or something's faulty with that machine or something like that. So it, it could be really interesting if someone was able to, in a rural area to bring it home and to diagnose a child. But my, my, my feeling though, is that, you know, in, unless there's like a doctor or someone in that area, you know, how, how valid will, my child's diagnosis was because of a machine. How valid will that fall within the overall community? You know, it, it would, it would definitely, what it would definitely do is it would definitely uh, cause an upheaval of the way 
we think about, you know, uh, opinions and yeah. uh, interpretations of of a person's uh, condition. You know, it's not just ASD I'm thinking about. It's, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know. Right. I guess eventually the eventually the machines will be doing all the diagnostics themselves. I, I think you're starting to speak to a, a larger overall issue here, which is, you know, hey, when exactly are the machines going to take our jobs? <laughs> <laughs> Automated as, diagnostics, baby. As, as a psychologist, you know, I'm, I'm feel, starting to feel my heartbeat a little faster, get a little, my palms a little sweaty with this conversation. <laughs> All right. All right. So we'll jump on over to the second story here, which is on work that was done by Dr. Stelios Georgiades and colleagues at McMaster University in Toronto. And they did some, some interesting work on the developmental progression of autism. And they reached uh, an informative conclusion about a critical window for autism care. So these researchers analyzed data from 187 children with autism that were enrolled in the Pathways in ASD study, which is a long-term project researching developmental trajectories in autistic children. They measured trait severity at four time points when children were diagnosed at 41 months of age, and again, at ages four, six, and 10 years, roughly. The researchers found that autism trait severity decreases from age three to six in most autistic children, but then progress stalls for approximately 75% of them. This finding alludes to the idea that at age six, when elementary school usually begins, that this is a critical turning point for autistic children. And therefore it is vital for families, schools, centers, and communities to provide some extra support at this time. In this study, 73% of the children showed a slight decrease in trait severity up to age six, and then no further change past that point. The other 27% of the sample showed a steeper decline at first and continued to increase in symptom severity over time. So this type of trajectory analysis although it may seem kind of intuitive to say that six years of age, that this is a critical window for the development of ASD, uh, these, this research can be really informative because it has an impact on the community, on you know, policymaking, the allocation of resources, and you know, to that degree, from research like this, it may ultimately be a, a good idea to, you know, put more funding, uh, put more resources into programs, um, interventions, opportunities for children who are of this age. So, Merrick, do you have any further thoughts to add on um, not only this article, but also critical time periods? Uh, in general, and, and what, what are some supports that could be provided to six-year-olds year with autism? Okay, I'll answer, of course, the first question first. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> so uh, basically, um, what I keep on hearing from people and, uh, you know, that until the age of three or until the age of four, they couldn't speak at all. I keep on, I have heard that so many times from self-advocates is that that is what they were like for like the first three or four years. And so I believe that when you're unable to speak, you're unable to talk, eventually you'll maybe have the ability to do so, but during those periods where you have wants and needs that you feel like you really must have, it is good for, I guess, uh, um, someone 
to it, it's it's like that uh what we just talked about with that uh, robot or machine <laughs> it's it's basically that you really need to have the best support system for uh children with autism who aren't able to verbalize yet and that to me is really really important um <clears throat> And it will also help them learn before verbalization. It will help them learn how to manage their wants and needs in a way that is more positive and constructive. Oh, I think I smell a little bit of something called controversy by what I just said. But anyways, um, yeah, I, I definitely do believe that, uh, you know, you, you really must look at the child and, and as I said before, the earlier, the better um, for, for diagnostics, for intervention. Um, and as far as what kind of extra supports can be provided to six-year-old children with autism, it's, it's really very easy. Actually, this, is, this could also be, you know, critical time periods of development that also could be easy. There, there's maybe one answer that I am really, really, I, I feel like I'm maybe I, I, I should give and I, I am definitely going to give it. Just, you know, uh, learn more about our elementary, well, pre to middle school that we have on campus called the Learning Center. And, you know, I've had so many phone calls from so many individuals telling me about how the school system doesn't understand autism. And I believe that the best thing to do is that if, if you know, the child is at age six, when elementary school usually begins, as you said, um, you know, that that's kind of a big hint there is that do you want to basically send that child to the same school as everyone else? Or do you think that sometimes, you know, something happens in which you've you've got to go to a school like the learning center where everyone basically has the same condition as the child has? different uh, points of severity, of course, you know, not everyone is going to have the same, it's going to be on the same part of the spectrum, but, you know, you, and you'll, and the child will be able to learn some very vital things. So not to be too, uh, you know, <laughs> anything, but uh, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, sending a child to a school that knows what autism is, is specialized in autism, can be very, very helpful. Um, I also think that because preschool and kindergarten and all that is actually very different from elementary school, um, I, I think that uh, there should definitely be transition supports and there should definitely be thoughts about, okay, so wherever the kid goes, um, how is that kid going to uh, deal with an with a atmosphere, you know, where the kid maybe has to get in line and go from class to class, where there's recess and, you know, all this stuff that may involve you know, a greater uh, social hierarchical mindset, um, it's, it's just probably going to be to where, you know, and, and I also think that at an elementary school, um, if, if wherever the kid goes, you know, if, if no one's really familiar with autism, uh, then, that, then that could be uh, very useful to find ways to, uh, you know, you know uh, have the kids stand out as a representative and basically say, you know, kid is, is, uh, is a human being 
and should be treated like anyone else uh, could or would. Um, so I, I do believe that it, it should be focused on... <clears throat> and the thing is, it should be focused on the kid with autism who cannot speak for the first like three years or something. That is, uh, you know, uh, it's very critical that if that kid doesn't even speak at all for their for the rest of their lives, um, that they have a way to formulate to formulate what it is that they want to need. And then once you get from there, then you've got a whole different ball game because, you know, kindergarten, preschool, that kind of thing. I don't usually hear about, you know, bullying stories of preschool and kindergarten. I think that elementary school is when bullying starts and when people are expected to, you know, kids are expected to play on the playground or in recess. They go to a cafeteria maybe to have lunch and they bond with other people. So it, there really has to be, you know, a thought as to how is, is that kid going to enjoy doing this or is that kid going to feel so much pressure and so much stress? Even if the kid may not even mention it, um, it it's, it's just, it, it's, something that really has to be taken into consideration. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I will hand it on over to you for the next two stories. Okay. So my first story is Ed Asner, 1929 to 2021. Ed Asner, a prolific actor who is most known as the Cranky Curmudgeons, Lou Grant, and TV's Mary Tyler Moore show, and the voice of Carl Frederick, or the old guy from the movie Up, passed away from natural causes at the age of 91 on August 29th. An activist, poker lover, actor, and former president of the Screen Actors Guild, or SHE, Mr. Asner will be missed by so many. It's especially important to know that one of the things that he championed, he was even an advocate ambassador for Autism Speaks, was in supporting those with autism. And a 2017 article from the Tennessee entitled Actor Ed Asner opens up about his son and grandson's autism. Ed discusses what it's like to have a family that has a good amount of members who are autistic, like his youngest son, Charlie, or three of his grandchildren, two of which are raised by his son, Matthew, vice president of development at the Autism Society of America, showing the roots run deep. Disability rights became his chief cause, especially when he thinks about how much help individuals with developmental and intellectual disabilities do not have. When it came to affordable housing, employment, and ways to generate greater independence for the autism community, he is well-loved. He also started the first annual International Alt Fest, a film festival devoted to the love of all things autism. This is a year after Ben Affleck portrayed an accountant with autism in, well, the accountant, and he was there to receive the Altfest Awareness Award. They have films about autism from all over the world, movies made by individuals with autism, and a panel for autism siblings following the screening of the award-winning documentary, Life Animated, about a man with autism learning about the world around him and finding greater independence through Disney films. There is an old Jewish tradition that a Jew of high integrity and honor is called the mensch. With your passing, Mr. Asner, you are not just a good person, but you're also a mensch. <laughs> still also followed the Asner family by checking out their Ed Asner Family Center linked in the show notes. So, okay. This is a real big pounder of, uh, of two questions. So the first one I'll ask you is, how familiar are you with Ed Asner? Oh, boy. Well... I might be revealing my age to the listeners to some degree, but I don't have, or at least prior to this episode, I didn't have a ton of familiarity with Ed Asner, but I think the word mensch uh, <laughs> sounds like it's very well fitting in this case, you know, for someone uh, to have had that much success in 
the acting world, to be a part of so many uh, well-known and iconic productions, and then to devote a large portion of their life to, you know, increasing autism awareness and helping those with autism to have more rights and opportunities, I think is just amazing. And it speaks volumes that we're hearing, you know, more and more stories about individuals like Ed Asner, who have done all this great work for the autism community. And, and I, it just makes me think about further, you know, how far things have come and, and how rare something like this, a story like this would have been say like 40 or 50 years ago. And on top of that, I, I would say, um, you know, on the topic of, of movies and film in general, um, I think that they provide really unique uh, opportunities for individuals with autism because, um, you know, there's, there's a wide array of different crafts, uh, different skills that go into, um, you know, making a great movie. A lot of times it's things that um, people don't see in the film, things that go on behind the camera. Um, and there's such a, such a need for, for technical skills, for uh, visionary skills. And, um, you know, I, I've always felt like a lot of the glory with TV and movie really happens behind the scenes. Um, and, and that allows like the actors to excel and the plot to really hit home. Well, you <laughs> certainly uh, brought out a big fish for a small question, but thank you so much for that. Um, my second question is a little bit more of a tongue twister. Uh, why are movies and theater so important for people with autism? Beyond our own drama club, Joey Travolta, brother of John, also has his own film camp, which I believe is north of us here, called Travolta Film Camp, which hopes to engage individuals with autism in the filmmaking process. Yeah, I think uh, I may have inadvertently touched on this uh, <laughs> when I was talking about Ed Asner, but... You know, just, just to add a little bit of this, uh, a little bit to this point, you know, I think uh, not only are there specifics to movies and theater that provide valuable opportunities to individuals with autism, but I also just think it's something we, we alluded to in our interview with Cindy uh, Langenfeld, where she spoke about a really interesting point, which is that you know, there, there's a lot of diversity within the autism spectrum and there's a lot of different um, interests, you know, unique activities are, that are going to appeal to some people versus others. And so um, just creating more opportunities in the arts, like film and theater and, you know, continuing to create more opportunities in the, in the sporting world. You know, I think we're seeing more and more that people with autism, they they can really excel in a variety of different domains. Um, and so just, you know, continuing to expand on these opportunities, uh, regardless of what uh, area it's in, is so important. All right. So my next uh, story is about Dr. Temple Grandin's birthday. Well, there was, of course, a sad bit of news on August 29th. There is also a little bit of a good bit of news um, on that same day where Dr. Temple Grandin celebrated her 74th birthday. We at the Four Autism Podcast would love to wish her a happy belated birthday, and I hope that she got a short break from a busy life teaching at Colorado State University on animal husbandry, lecturing, writing books, etc. While she may be the grand dame, as I would call her, of autism and perhaps the first celebrity self-advocate, some people may still not know her. I didn't until some years ago. While there was a fantastic HBO movie made about her life, Temple Grandin, where she was played by Claire Danes, which really helped her profile, 
not that it needed any helping, and which he has always been appreciated, uh, appreciative of. If you want a shorter version, here it is. Dr. Temple Grandin exhibited many of the traits generally found in those of autism, but it was the 1950s and the world can be cruel. Instead of forcing her into an institution, her mother, who accompanies her on stage sometimes, decided to take her abilities and placed her in private educational curriculums. She was also exposed to her passion of farm animals while working on a ranch in Texas. And in those formative years, she learned about her meltdowns and anxiety, that she was a strong visual learner common to many with autism, and also had strong mentor-mentee relationships with those above her. During high school, she created what is a hug machine that would allow her to squeeze inside to relieve herself of sensory overload and stress, modeled after the squeeze chutes that cattle are run through in order to keep them still for anything like vaccinations. It was through this that she discovered that animals and people are not that different when it comes to the sensitivity of the world around them. This would become her life's work. From then on, with her company, Grandin Livestock Systems, she sought to revolutionize the livestock industry by making sure that the slaughterhouses could operate without inducing pain or fear into the animal. This has become the new standard, so whenever you eat a hamburger or a steak, you can thank Dr. Temple Grandin. I don't have a steak right now, but this glass of milk I toast to you wherever you may be, happy birthday. Nate, anything you would like to add? Wow, I really think you covered the full range there. But um, just would like to also wish uh, Dr. Temple Grandin a very happy birthday, and you know, big thanks from the Four Autism Podcast and the Ells for Autism Foundation for all the work you've done for this community, and um, really just helping to mainstream this condition and, and showing that amazing things can be done um, by individuals with autism. Yep. And of course, I want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in October with some more coverage in us on the autistic community in general. It could be spooky. So, as usual, if you could join me, Nate, for... I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. Flying through the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. A moth is a butterfly without any colors, but what's beautiful is what's inside. Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide. Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around. Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground. Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar Will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air And it's 
from a higher point of view We'll fly together, me and you Well now I can fly so high Cause I'm a butterfly I'm flying through the air so high 